Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. Film clips played at the live event have been edited out of the podcast. In this conversation, groundbreaking writer turned showrunner and producer Neil Gaiman speaks with moderator Sasha Judd about the joys and constraints of adapting his stories for the screen. They discuss collaboration, bringing worlds and characters he's created in the past into the present, and what he's learnt steering projects as a showrunner, including Netflix's The Sandman, which was yet to be released at the time of recording. This session is presented by South Pacific Pictures. Kia ora koutou katoa, he mihi mai o ki te tangata whenua, ko Ngāti Whātua o Rake, he mihi mai o hā ki a koutou mai, ko Sasha tōku ingoa. And a very warm welcome to Neil, who's joining us from New York and not Scotland, which I feared, which would have put him in a very inhospitable time zone, uh, and from his new remote working setup, complete with couch, he tells me. <laughs> welcome, Neil. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that video with us. It's so amazing to get a sense of the sheer scale of the production and the work that's going in, um, into this. I guess my first question to you is a screen ad adaptation brings you out of what has historically been quite a solitary role as a writer, and it puts you in a, a much more crowded and collaborative environment. And I wondered how you'd found that switch from writing alone to being part of a much larger team. I think, I mean, in many ways it felt kind of familiar, partly because of the strange shape of my career in that I started out really in comics, and uh, which is incredibly collaborative. You are always on the phone to your artist, your editor, your letterer, your colorist, your friend who paints the covers, that's, that's how it's going to work. And also, I've, every now and then, over the decades, I've made television. When I made it in the 90s, it was very much as a writer with no real control beyond that. And, and writing, making television when you are a writer with no control is a bit of a crapshoot. You may get lucky. You may get people who read the scripts and then decide to go and make something completely different. And so I, I, what I've tended to do over the shape of my career is to do big collaborative things until I get grumpy with the fact that it's not my vision, <laughs> pure and unmessed with. And then I say, um, I hate you all, I'm going off to write a novel now. And I write novels for a bit. And then I look around one day and I go, this is incredibly lonely. Wouldn't it be fun to work with other people again? And then, then I get back to being collaborative. And do you feel that now that your career is at the stage that it's at and you obviously have a lot more creative power in that television process, do you feel that there's still space for people to bring their own contributions to challenge your way of thinking or to bring new ideas to that process as you work through an adaptation? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you didn't, there wouldn't be any fun to it. I, I, I'm, I'm not a very good dictator and I wouldn't enjoy being a dictator. But what I do like is having a kind of power of because I say so in a last resort. When I made Neverwhere with the BBC in 1996, I simply didn't have that power. And I remember having specified costumes for people in the script, because I was very used to working comics where you describe what people were wearing to your artist who would then draw them. And I 
carefully described what everybody was wearing in Neverwhere. And then I remember going in and meeting the costume designer and she showed me a bunch of stuff. And, uh, and she showed me a jacket that was a leather jacket in the script and was now a sort of parka. And I said, but shouldn't that be a leather jacket? And she said, no, 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 everybody's wearing leather in this. I'm like, that was the only leather thing in the script. And it was, it was just sort of off-putting for me to go, but these people were all meant to be wearing specific things that signified things, and you've gone in and you've ignored it, and you've made up your own thing. And I don't think your thing is better than mine. <laughs> um, but what I've loved making Good Omens, uh, both Good Omens is, and making Anansi Boys, and, and even making Sandman, is people coming in with suggestions, with designs, with ways of doing things, and I go, that's much better than my way. Um, that that improves some things. I and then I've been really enjoying taking that for Good Omens season two because I can then go back to what I loved in season one, which you know maybe actor performances, maybe design choices by Michael Ralph, our amazing designer, or anything like that. And I'll go, I loved that thing that we did then. So now. I'm going to bring that in and play with it because I didn't know when I was writing it that we were going to do that and or I didn't know how good it was. So I'm going to bring back these characters because I love them and I had no idea that I was going to love them and that kind of thing. Yeah, it puts you at the intersection of a whole bunch of um, other crafts, I suppose, in addition to writing and some of the experience you've had with graphic novels, uh, whether that's production design, sound design, the music choices. Um, how have you found sitting at that intersection? Like, Are these things informed by how you felt when you were writing the book, or are these brand new ways of fleshing the story out? I think they have to be brand new ways. You have to start from now, um, or at least I do. And then I have a director who, uh, in the shape of, of Douglas McKinnon, who has a remarkable tendency when we get stuck to go back to the book and say, you know, you did this thing 34 years ago when you wrote this, and uh, I think we should just do that. And I'm like, that will never work, and then it does. <laughs> and uh, so there's, so I tend to be much more the one who goes, we're going to go off and do something that wasn't in the book, and I'm very often the one who gets told off. <laughs> Reined back in. When you agree to an adaptation, what's at the heart of that decision? Is it about um, reaching a new audience for you, or is it about realizing the work itself, telling the story in a different medium? It very much depends. I love. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I I do tend to think of films and television as hundred million dollar adverts for books and graphic novels, and I'm definitely like just going, okay, look, we've made this thing, and uh, I think it's going to be good, but even if it isn't, if a tiny fraction of those people read the book, then I've got a whole bunch of new readers and happy people, and people who are going to go, you know, oh, that was what that should have been, that was what that thing was about. But really, I, I guess the thing that tends to drive me most, actually it changes from project to project. With Good Omens, what was very specifically driving me, you know, was just Terry Pratchett had really wanted an adaptation of Good Omens. And Terry and I had spent four years working on, having agreed to do it in 2010, 
we'd found other people to be showrunners and writers. They hadn't worked out. They kept wanting to do something that wasn't good omens. Terry Pratchett was getting more and more frustrated. And finally, he got in touch with me and said, you have to do this. You have to do this because I want to see it. And the only way I'm going to get to see it is if you make it. He said, you're the only person who cares for the old girl as much as I do. The old girl at this point being good omen. I have no idea why it was the old girl. Um, and then I agreed to do it. And then Terry died. Um, fairly suddenly, kind of surprisingly. And I thought I had years. And now Terry was gone. And I remember flying to the UK. It was the shortest trip I've ever made to the UK. I was there for 36 hours. I literally flew in for his funeral and flew back again because I had a pregnant wife back in Boston at that point and um, landed and started writing episode one. I didn't really think I had any other, there was nothing else that I could have done. And I felt incredibly obligated to see it through and just determined I didn't want to be a showrunner and then wound up absolutely showrunning it and making it. And then one of the things that Terry and I had talked about was the fact that we had more plot. We had stuff that we wanted to do, and I borrowed bits from future stuff that we wanted to do and planted it and seeded it all the way through Good Omens. So now I'm like, okay, well, I can see this thing through to the end of the plot that we wanted to do, and I'll do that for Terry, and then all debts are paid. And um, besides which, I'd somehow become the person who put Michael Sheen and David Tennant together on the screen which just felt a lot like the person who first went, you know, you can mix chocolate and peanut butter and it's fabulous. <laughs> that, that's a great segue, actually, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the new material in Good Omens. I mean, for fans of the book, there were some incredible new scenes in that and then the announcement there'd be a whole, a whole second season. And I guess I, I was interested to understand how much of that came from the original work and the original collaboration and how much of it came out of the filming process. Um, well, a lot of the second season came out of the filming process. The second season is weird because Terry and I had basically plotted a sequel to Good Omens. And that will be, if it happens, the third season. The second season was what I needed in order to get from the end of the first season to the beginning of the, sec of the third season. So it's kind of a sandwich. Um, and a lot of that simply came out of me going, I love that thing, that thing. I love that thing that actor came in and did that I wasn't expecting. Um, I love this relationship. I love working with a bunch of these actors and a lot of their stories finished in season one, so I want to bring some of them back and I'm just going to recast them and treat them as a rep company. And so I got to bring actors like Nino Shasanya and Maggie Service um, back in completely new roles. Uh, Miranda Richardson, you know, you don't get to work with Miranda Richardson and not want to work with Miranda Richardson some more. So um, there was actually me going, okay, well, I need a character to fulfill this plot function and I need a part for Miranda Richardson. Why don't I combine the two? 
and uh, create this part as a Miranda character. And that was really fun because at that point I'm building, there was no point in Good Omens season one where I was writing for a character, despite the fact that Michael Sheen had been on board from day zero. Um, I wasn't writing for a character because when I started writing it, I thought Michael was going to be playing Crowley. And it wasn't until I was writing episode three and I had Crowley coming down the aisle of the church, hopping as if, uh, you know, on a beach on a hot day um, as he comes in contact with the, the consecrated ground. And I thought, this would be a really good David Tennant part. And I'd already started wistfully thinking that actually one of the things I loved about Michael Sheen as a person is his goodness. I love that Michael is one of the few, he's complicated, but he's one of these people who, from whom, you know, goodness beams out. He's trying to do the right thing in a strange world and he's trying to do it very hard. And I thought, I've seen so many performances by Michael in which he plays brittle, scary, odd characters with an edge to them. Here he is as Tony Blair, Kenneth Williams, David Frost. You know, he's probably somebody who's going to turn out to be a serial killer if you probe deep enough. And yet the actual Michael is just this wonderful person with goodness. And I haven't seen him play that. And I started becoming more and more convinced that I wanted him as a Zerifer, which culminated in, frankly, one of the most awkward dinners I've ever had because I'd sent the scripts to Michael and we met for dinner. And it was a dinner at which I was trying to tell him that I didn't want him to play Crowley, sexy dude in the dark glasses. I wanted him to play Aziraphale. And he was trying to pluck up the nerve to explain to me that he'd read the scripts and actually he thought he would probably make a much better Aziraphale than he would a Crowley. And it was just the two of us awkwardly dog-legging about the awkward bit of the conversation with no idea that that was what the other one was trying to get to as well. So uh, we did get there. And then you went looking for someone who would be more demonic in the form of David Tennant. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I basically, I said to them, everybody, I want David Tennant. And Amazon said, absolutely no, definitely not. You can't have David Tennant. You definitely can't have David Tennant. He's, he's too much like Michael Sheen. They're, they're the same kind of person. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly why I want them. And it was a weird kind of bumpy conversation for a long time. And I, I was fascinated after they were cast, after they were both cast, to realize they'd never been on screen together. They, except for one thing when they were both incredibly young, they'd never even been in the same thing because they go, go up for the same parts. And that for me was the point. And people were going, well, you could, each one of them could swap roles. And it's like, yes, they could. That's, you're talking about a character here who in my first draft of the first 5,000 words of Good Omens, was one character. And when Terry turned that first 5,000 words into the first 10,000 words, the first thing he did was split them, split this one character into two characters. And instead of having a rather sweet and ineffectual demon, you now had a sweet ineffectual angel and a demon who was trying to be cool but wasn't really. So are you taking credit for their very successful lockdown uh, collaborations? 
No. <laughs> um, but, well, I, yes, in a way, because that, actually, I mean, the, the glorious thing about that is that um, that actually came out of Simon, the writer of Staged, watching them doing promo for Good Omens and just as themselves and having fun with each other and taking the piss out of each other and going, these two are hilarious. This would be great and spring it on them. The speed with which they did that was astonishing. I remember being lonely and miserable in Sky and Michael sending me a link to the complete staged. And I'm like, hang on, lockdown's only just started. How did you do this? And, uh, and then I was eking it out for myself. I was, I was very miserable and very lonely and watching one episode a night just to, and if I could stretch it out a few more days, I'd even stretch it down a few more days because I knew that it would cheer me up. And the only time I've ever lost it completely all alone in a room and just been unable to stop laughing um, was there's a point in, I think, episode four or five where Michael Sheen is on the phone to somebody and he's arguing with his neighbor and he's trying to find out about the... Uh, the old lady next door that he's been having problems with his neighbor. And there's a little bit of the conversation where he's like, starts, he's introducing himself. And then there's a beat. And then he says, well, yes, everybody likes me all game. And you can tell that somebody's just been, the last thing he wanted to hear was something nice about me at that point. And that's <laughs> what he's trying to deal with. And I just lost it. I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world because I really wasn't expecting it. So tell us a bit more about that casting process. I mean, I've seen you say that you saw 1,500 auditions for Morpheus in this new adaptation of The Sandman. I mean, that that feels overwhelming. What's overwhelming to me is how many Morphei, Morphei, Morpheuses, dreams, the casting director must have seen. Because I know that I didn't see them all. And I know that I didn't see them all because every now and then I run into people who I know or know vaguely or meet, and they say, oh, I auditioned for Dream. And I'm like, oh, did you? And I'm like, I never saw your audition, which means the casting director didn't even pass it on. So how many? Uh, that was uh, So the process of casting Tom Sturridge as Dream went more or less like this. Get an email from Lucinda Sison, casting director, with four actors who she thinks would be Dream, and links to their, their, their done little auditions. One of those four is Tom Sturridge. We look at it, we go, this is great. We also go, or at least I go, this is great. We can put him on the list. In a few weeks' time, we'll probably have 10, of, 10 people like him on the list. This is, but, but great, we've got one already. And then we watched Dreams, and then we watched Dreams, and then we watched Dreams, and there were probably a few hundred initially. And by the time we'd gone to a few hundred, um, we were having the conversation with Warners and we were going, we think Tom Sturridge. And they're like, we think Tom Sturridge. And Netflix were like, are you sure? We don't think Tom Sturridge. So Warners did something because they were producing it, which I still look back on as going both incredibly brave and incredibly sensible, which is they hired Tom and they put him on a retainer for you know, four or five months, just not to go and take any other jobs, not to take any other auditions. It's like, we are, we're just paying you. Please hang loose. And then we, we were still looking. The auditions are still coming in. Several hundred more come in. But 
Netflix have gone, oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Yes, it's time. And then the pandemic hit. The world went into lockdown. Nothing was going to be shot. And Netflix said, seeing that nothing else is going to be shot for a while, let's just look at a few other people for drinks. Why don't we do that? And we looked at about six, 700 different auditions. And actually, they were kind of the best thing about them was confirming the Tom Sturridge-ness of it. <laughs> and I hadn't realized how difficult Morpheus's dialogue is to say. And there's a weird level on which really good actors, I mean, a lot of the people who auditioned were fabulous. They were really, really good. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't find the rhythms. And Tom just seemed to know exactly where the rhythms were, exactly where the stresses were, where you pause, how you deliver these lines. And it's like, this is so great. But I, I watched about eight months later, nine months later, I watched so many of our finest actresses come a cropper trying to do death. And I discovered that if you've written in your audition a line like, um, you know, you're the sorriest excuse for an anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane, and you expect uh, actresses to nail that in an audition, you're going to watch some great actresses falling down, unable to get that line out. And then one day, Kirby Howell Baptiste is going to come along and deliver it, and you're going to go, oh, can we have her, please? You'll be aware that there's quite a few, I guess what could be called casting controversies, uh, lately. Um, Rick Rodden, an author who's also had a number of high-profile adaptations, wrote a pretty passionate blog post recently in defence of the actress that he had chosen for his adaptation in response to, to racist fans online. How do you think about picking up your work several decades after writing it and what it takes to embody a character that you've created as an actor? I've been fascinated by... Um, I don't know. There's sort of a there are weird controversies going on which aren't very controversial. And once you start looking at the numbers on Twitter, you kind of notice for yourself that here are sixty. And you know, here is a a grumpy post about you casting a black woman as Death or Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer or a non-binary actor in the shape of Mason Alexander Park to play a non-binary character in the shape of desire. And, you know, this person gets 60 likes and you tell them off and you get 50, 60,000 likes. And I'm going, this is not a controversy. This is a tiny handful of grumpy people. Most, the majority, I won't say all of them, but I will say the vast majority of them never read Sandman have no idea that, you know, in episode four of Sandman, we get to see that Morpheus is also, you know, he's seen by his lover from Africa 10,000 years ago, and we see Morpheus and he's black. And then he's seen by the Martian Manhunter, and he's a Martian. He's just a giant flaming head. And when he's met by cats, he's a large black cat. It's like, guys, this is, you know, if, if you're going to insist on one look or one form for these characters, you're kind of missing the point. And for Gwendolyn, um, she's playing Lucifer. And Lucifer in Sandman was based 
visually on the young folk singer David Bowie when he had curly hair and uh, looked kind of like a junkie angel. And that was the look that I wanted. And I thought, well, Gwendolyn's going to be perfect for that. She's a rock star. And I love how tall she is. Um, you know, Gwendolyn is enormous. She's a giant. She just keeps going up. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like Dudley Moore next to her. You know, when these photos with Dudley Moore next to pretty much anybody. Um, so I, I just sort of, and I thought this is going to be glorious. It's going to be actually intimidating because Tom Sturridge is fairly tall and Tom looks like a child next to her. It's fabulous. And also, you know, in the comic, you get to see Lucifer naked. Lucifer doesn't have any kind of reproductive organs. Lucifer is an angel. So I, that one, I have to confess, it never occurred to me that there would be any kind of controversial anything about that, that anybody was going to accuse me of gender switching because I'm like, well, Lucifer is genderless. This is just like casting Tilda Swindon as Gabriel or whatever. You, why would anybody get grumpy? But Obviously, people have done. There was a fabulous post this morning on Twitter accusing me of anti-Semitism and sacrilege for casting Gwendolyn as Lucifer. And I'm like, Lucifer isn't even in the Old Testament. Lucifer's like, Lucifer barely shows up until Milton. And <laughs> anyway. You mentioned just then about desire now using they, them pronouns. And it's maybe a good example of taking a work that you did write a long time ago and revisiting it in the in the contemporary moment. What does that do for your adaptation process? Like, are there things when you read Good Omens now that feel a little outdated? You know, you changed the spirit guide, for example. Um, yeah. Are there things that are a bit cringe now that you want to change? Uh, or do the ideas still feel timely at their heart? I think I was very lucky with Sandman in that, Looking at it now, there wasn't an awful lot that we had to change because of awful cringe factor, which made me very happy. There were definitely lines in Good Omens that I looked at in the book and went, well, it was 1989. It was a long time ago. I wouldn't write that now. And now I'm not putting that line on the television. And was very cheerful about that. But with Sandman... I would have loved the they pronoun if it had been floating around in 1988 because something that indicated the multiplicity of gender that was desire would have been a fabulous thing to have. I was using he, she, it, brother, sister, using all sorts of, you know, forming as many ways of trying to indicate that here was a being that did not exist within any kind of gender boundaries, um, but didn't have a language for it. So I love, you know, back then we were just fighting the grammar battle of they can be singular. That was, you know, so we were still dying on that hill. We had not yet reached the hill of they can be singular when referring to a specific person. We were still in the, we were still fighting the battle of you know, actually, uh, you know, back then, the prescriptive pronoun for an individual whose gender, or who, actually not even whose gender, whose identity you did not know was he. And you could quite legitimately, if, if you wanted to, in that sense, talk about his abortion or his period 
and you weren't doing enlightened things about gender, you were just dealing with the prescriptive vision of grammatical rules that the Victorians had quite liked. Tell us a little bit about your process. As a novelist, you've spoken about um, writing long form for your first draft by hand. When it comes to adaptation, does your process change? Do you still think about it in a linear way or do you sit down with a book or a graphic novel and chunk it up differently or approach it differently? I tend to be ridiculously pragmatic. So I will go, okay, how many episodes am I doing here? This is an adaptation process. It's not creating original stuff. But I will go, how many pages is this? Oh, it's 360 pages. Great. How many episodes is this? It's going to be six. That gives me 60 pages per episode. Great. And you put a post-it note in every 60 pages and then see where we are in the book. In the case of Good Omens, the most fun that I had was dictated by having done it that way. Because I went, hang on, Crowley and Aziraphale are our stars. We are going to have paid them the most money to appear. They are meant to be on the screen. And they aren't in this 60-page chunk. They don't have anything to do. Crowley isn't in it. And Aziraphale is reading, he's drinking cocoa and reading (laughs) all through the 60 pages. They will be back, but they're not there now. I should do something with that. And I thought about it not very long. And I thought, well, why don't I do the longest cold open in human history? And actually, at I think 28 minutes, it probably is before the titles show up. And just do 6,000 years of the ups and downs of Crowley and Aziraphale's relationship. And then if I do a little stuff with them in the present day, it will gain additional power by having watched them go from sort of enemies to sort of grudging kind of friends to actually sort of being in love. And I'll tell that kind of thing and you'll get to watch that happen. And that will then allow us to actually do an awful breakup later in the episode. So that kind of thing where you're just, you're going, okay, because the book doesn't give me this, I'm going to need something here that does this. So that honestly tends to be my adaptation process. It's just how long is the book? Roughly where where are my divisions going to come? And then you negotiate with yourself and then you realize that it doesn't work like that. Then you, you grab scenes earlier and then you do stuff to it. But that's the, that's, the framework on which the whole thing hangs. And is the process of adapting the graphic novel simpler? I mean, as a lay person, it seems that it would be much simpler when it's had that visual component. Um, Does the art start to become a bit of a shot list or is it not that straightforward? It's not that straightforward. Um, And it's not that straightforward because a comic is not... A comic isn't a shot list. A comic is a thing, good comics occur in your head. Good comics create the illusion of movement happens in panel borders. Scott McCloud's glorious book, Understanding Comics, has a moment in it where you have a panel um, of a woman standing behind a man or a man standing behind a woman, I forget which, holding a knife, and then a shot of a skyscraper and a scream coming from one of the rooms. And then you get little Scott McLeod coming on and saying, actually, I have to point out 
that I didn't kill that person, you did. And you realize, of course, that that's the, it's the juxtaposition of images that creates the magic of comics. Having said that, we loved being able to use Sandman as a visual reference. It meant that we weren't, we weren't reinventing the wheel. We, we knew what our characters looked like. We knew how they were dressed. Um, we had something that was a lovely benchmark, a lovely place to go. But also comics aren't telling, you know, no medium is another medium. It was about to say comics aren't television. And comics aren't television. But when I was, what was that? I was about 26 when my first graphic novel was published. It was called Violent Cases. And in some places, it's really dark. There's a point in there where a adult narrator is remembering being three, four years old and being told about Al Capone clubbing some people to death at a party. And that's juxtaposed with the games that are going on at an actual children's party. And it's, it can become quite nightmarish. And I was thrilled when I heard that that was going to be adapted into a play, put on stage. And I remember going and seeing it. And on the one hand, it was the most faithful production you could possibly imagine. Not a line, not a word had changed. And on the other hand, Everything about it had changed. Moments that seemed transient and unimportant in, in the graphic novel had now become incredibly important because they had some stage magic going on with them. Moments that were grueling and nightmarish suddenly seemed insignificant because you couldn't see people's faces. You couldn't see the stuff that you could see in the graphic novel. And that was the moment I realized that you cannot transliterate you have to translate. You have to go, okay, what makes what happens on a stage magic? Where does that magic occur? And so that, you know, now that we've, we've recently done uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane, and I got to work on, doing on the West End, and I got to work with the director and the scriptwriter a lot uh, over the years, honing it. And I love the changes that they've made to make this amazing theater and they made amazing theater i've seen it three times now i've cried every time i shouldn't be crying i wrote the bloody thing <laughs> you know it's but there are moments they get to you emotionally and it really works and you're not crying because you're sad you're crying because suddenly your heart is too full and it's been filled by this thing that you're seeing on the stage and the only place it can come out is in tears and and you look around and it's happening to the rest of the audience too and and it's like that accomplishment, if I'd been the one going, you can't do that, it says in the book that this thing, we wouldn't be at this place of having made something magic. You say that no medium is another medium. Um, does that inform, like you're currently working on two different Sandman adaptations simultaneously. There's the, the audio uh, book adaptation and then this new um, screen production and with completely different casts and presumably um, different thinking that informs that. Uh, what's What drives that? Is it confusing? Is it energising? Is it exhausting? It's not confusing. I'm, I mean, the audible adaptation, what it is in a weird way is liberating. And one reason it is so liberating 
is the television production freed Audible to Dirk Maggs and I, if the only thing, the, if the only adaptation of Sandman would ever have happened would have been the Audible one, we probably would have taken more liberties. But knowing that Sandman, the television series, would be slowly on, you know, was, was rumbling very slowly down the slipway, it meant that Dirk and I could go, let's make this faithful. Let's make this the audiobook of the original graphic novels. Let's set this in 1989 through to 1993. Let's, let's do this in a way that, uh, here, I, I, I said to him, I will give you the original scripts that I wrote for the artists, and which give you the original panel descriptions. And let's give some of those, wherever you need a description, let's take those original panel descriptions done for the artist and use them. So that's what we do. And I was the narrator um, because I wasn't going to let anybody else do it, even though I feel guilty and keep thinking we should actually get a proper narrator. But I love doing it. But then the existence of the Audible version, which is so gloriously faithful, liberated us to go, okay, we're not going to do Sandman as a 1989 period piece. Let's start it. Now, what does that give us? Where does that take us? What, what would change? You know, yes, people have phones, but what else? And sometimes it, it took us to places that it was an absolute delight to go to. And sometimes it just made us sad that the world hadn't changed very much. I'm going to switch to some questions from our audience now. Uh, the first one is there's some strong design themes in your film and television work. Have you been able to engage Dave McKean in any of the conceptual work for Sandman? Uh, Dave is involved in Sandman, but that hasn't been announced yet, and I cannot tell you how, <laughs> in what capacity, or even, and it's quite possible that I just said that last thing, and it isn't even true. There you go. That may get me out of trouble in case Netflix come looking for me. <laughs> We won't tell. Uh, as a comic um, book... But also, also, let me throw in, Dave, um, there, there was a point about, I think, five or six years ago where Dave, in the sweetest, nicest, kindest possible way, uh, turned to us all and said, I've been doing the covers for Sandman since 1987. I did my, maybe early 1988, I did my first covers. I've redesigned these books five times. I've done this. I've done all of these things. I think it's time for me to retire. So that was the point where Dave went, I, technically I've now retired from this. But, but hypothetically speaking, had he agreed to do something, <laughs> you would, of course, hypothetically see it when the show drops. <laughs> As a comic book writer, what's your opinion of... Um Martin Scorsese and others saying that superhero movies are ruining cinema. And I guess a follow-up to that, do you think of Sandman as a superhero movie? No, I definitely don't. Although I've seen a couple of scripts over the decades where they tried really hard. <laughs> and uh, all I learned from them was that Sandman will be a terrible superhero movie. <laughs> um, I, it's weird. 30 years ago, 30 33 years ago, 34 years ago, when I started writing comics, all there was was superheroes. They were everywhere. And there wasn't anything else, really. And I remember in interviews, 
people would try and ask me about superheroes, I would be saying we need, the point of comics is comics is a medium. It's not a genre. It's a medium that is mistaken for a genre, but it is just a medium. And we need more comics for everyone. We need comics in any place. There is a genre. We could have comics and graphic novels. We, we, need, we need women making comics. We need all of these things that we just didn't have then. And what I love now is we have that. We're actually in a world in which, you know, my son loves graphic novels. And I realized the other day he doesn't actually have any superhero graphic novels. All of the stuff that he's got, some of it is classic, you know, European Asterix and Tintin kind of stuff. There are things, you know, he has some fabulous Kiwi graphic novels. Uh, the Inkberg Enigma, love. Um, his favorite thing right now is, I think, a Canadian comic, although I mistakenly thought it was Kiwi because of the title, Black Sand Beach, which are these sort of weird, lovely horror comics for kids. And, and I love that, that that stuff is out there. So all of these adaptations are out there. What I think of Martin Scorsese grumbling about Marvel adaptations and superhero stuff, I felt incredibly sympathetic because that was how I felt making Sandman, which was not a superhero comic, in 1988, 1989, when it felt like the only things anybody was interested in were superhero comics. And I was trying to do other things and trying to make Mr. Punch and Violent Cases and Signal to Noise and these graphic novels that had absolutely nothing to do with superheroes. So, you know, anybody who feels that they're the available oxygen is being consumed by superhero stuff has my sympathy. When you were writing Doctor Who, did you have any pictures for episodes that never made it to screen? I wanted to do, and there weren't pictures for episodes in the sense of I ever worked anything up into a full story, pitched it and was rejected, although I definitely have, you know, said to Stephen Moffat, can I do this? And say, no. But there were things that we wanted to do and that just time did not work. The one that makes me grumpiest uh, was I really wanted to do a thing about the Doctor and refugees with Peter Capaldi and do a special that would have been a refugee-based special and possibly even shoot some of it in one of the Syrian refugee camps in Jordan on the idea of, you know, intergalactic refugees and human refugees and time and space. And they loved the idea. I loved the idea. I think even Peter Capaldi loved the idea. Um, we loosely got permission to have shot in, um, I think, Zartri camp. And then I literally got too busy with Good Omens and it never happened. Um, that was the one that I feel guilty about because I should have made it, and we should have done it, and I wish we had. Got another Doctor Who question here. The episode Nightmare in Silver was originally two parts that was trimmed down to one. What scenes were left on the cutting room floor, and will we be seeing a target novelization in the future? I, you know, it's interesting. Um, with Nightmare in Silver, I, I remember years after it had been broadcast, running across the original script and reading it, having completely forgotten it, and go, oh, that made sense when I wrote it. Oh, that was what that was meant to be. But 
I, I think what Nightmare and Silver actually did that was really important was make me a showrunner for Good Omens and then for Sandman and for Anansi Boys. And it did it because I got really lucky in The Doctor's Wife. I wrote a script. The director read it, understood the script, loved it. They had them. In fact, they didn't have the money to make The Doctor's Wife, so it got bounced from the season it was meant to have been in to the next season. And But they knew that it was going to be there, and they took a load of other um, episodes behind the bike sheds and beat them up and took their pocket money, <laughs> and they gave it to The Doctor's Wife. So we actually had the money to make it, and it was great, and I was so happy. Nightmare and Silver, what was written didn't felt like it didn't get to the screen. And, you know, there were sequences that got rewritten by the art department because they rewrote the sequences to what they could do. And it just felt like a huge missed opportunity. And, you know, some fabulous cast members, but some not so fabulous. Some people and some scenes that made everything make sense that just never got shot. And I, and I walked away from that going, okay, if I write, I've written these Good Omen scripts and I don't know if I'm going to get A Doctor's Wife or A Nightmare on Silver. And the only way that I'm going to be sure is if I'm there. And, and it really was a good thing that I was there. I remember you know, having huge fights with producers. All of the producers that we had wanted to lose all of the flashbacks in episode three that we spoke of earlier because they would be expensive and they couldn't see the point. And, you know, can't we at least lose Arthurian Britain? Can't we at least, you know, one set of producers actually planned to shoot the globe in a way that would have meant we couldn't have shot the globe. What they, they'd actually sabotaged it intentionally because they put it on December the 20th and we were meant to have shot it on December the 20th. And um, the globe has natural light. You have no artificial light. You have to have natural light. And we had to be out of there by midday for the actual globe things to start happening. And they're scheduling it for a point in the UK when the sun isn't up until, the, you know, we would have had literally two and a half hours of shooting time. And it's like, you just don't want that to happen. And so we had to move it around. So there was lots of, there were battles that got fought in season one. There weren't any battles like that that got fought in season two. Season two, those battles had long since been won. So it made life a lot easier. But I, but, you know, that really was for me the biggest takeaway from Nightmare and Silver of if I want it to be the thing that's in my head, even if I've written the best script, you know, if I've written a script I love and I think it's a fabulous script, there is no guarantee that script will be shot unless I'm there advocating for it, if necessary, fighting for it, saying no to bad casting and yes to good casting, saying, I remember the producers on one set of producers on Good Omen season one explaining that we didn't have the money to do... Um, the exploding of Agnes Nutter, but they thought that we could just do it with a narrator and a few, um, you know, some drawings. And I'm like, can't do it like that because uh, Terry Pratchett wrote that sequence. Terry wrote the Agnes Nutter bit. 
It was his favorite bit in the book. And I owe it to Terry to have that actually happen with live actors. And so we're going to make it. We're going to figure out where the money is going to come from. And in fact, what we wound up doing was I wound up and the Terry Pratchett estate wound up subsidizing Good Omens because I said, well, hang on. We own the rights to the script book and the making of Good Omens book. If we throw in our share, would BBC Publications throw in its share to the public, to the book uh, and put it on the screen? And the BBC said yes. And Rob Wilkins, who's Terry Pratchett's rep, said yes. And I said yes. So those books came out and I didn't, you know, I never saw a penny from them. Um, but I didn't care because we got that scene shot and we got to explode Agnes Nutter. <laughs> Thank you so much, Neil. That's been absolutely amazing. Please join me in thanking Neil. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.